Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello history friends, Zach Twomley here. Now normally in When Diplomacy Fails, we don't talk about current affairs, we just stick to the history, because it's easier that way. And it's nice to have a bit of an escape from the drudgery and bad news of the news cycle these days. But something about what's going on in Ukraine is just... It just gets me in a way that nothing else has really gotten me before. So this episode here is an exploration of that. It's also an exploration of some other ideas as well, like diplomacy, and whether or not it has failed, and whether or not it can still succeed. It feels a bit ridiculous to claim that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is personal to me when I'm not Ukrainian, but it really does feel personal, because for a bit of context, two years ago, I'm going to take you back to literally before COVID and everything, Like, when I was coming back on the plane from Ukraine, they were talking about COVID being in Italy, and for some reason I was just not at all aware of what was going to happen. I mean, I don't think anyone was, but literally two weeks after I arrived back in Ireland, everywhere in the world seemed to shut down. So I just got back in time, and I'm left with this strange vision of a Ukraine before COVID, before restrictions, before the world changed, and of course before... Putin's invasion changed things even more for Ukrainians. So with that vision in mind, I'd like to just set the scene a little bit for what I saw in Ukraine when I was there to give you guys a bit of context, because as this recent incident has shown, most people don't really know all that much about Ukraine. And understandably, they have to get their information from news sources or historians or other important authorities on the subject, and obviously Ukrainians themselves, but I thought this might give you a little bit of insight into how things work in Ukraine, or at least how they used to work before Putin invaded. So I was in Ukraine in the last week of February 2020, and in that time I stayed in Kiev. Now, I just want to say for the sake of pronunciations, Kiev is the Ukrainian pronunciation of the city Kiev, but I've always called it Kiev because I like chicken Kievs and that's just the way I've always said it. So I'm going to say it that way now and basically that's really my TED talk on the subject. But yes, uh, stayed in Kiev for 
a few days while I got the plane in there from Dublin. And while there, I essentially planned to surprise this podcast listener called Savatislav Yurash, who's actually the youngest Ukrainian parliamentarian in history. And he joined Vladimir Zelensky's party in Ukraine. So you can see by that, you can probably guess his political inclinations. Proud patriot, very fiercely independent, of course, understandably, and also has a very firm grasp of his country's history, his country's politics, and Ukraine's place in the world. But in any case, yes, I stayed in Kiev for about a night to basically get my bearings, and then we went to Lviv, and I surprised Svatoslav Yurash there. And it was fantastic. The city of Lviv is further to the west, and it's got a fascinating history in itself. They're quite big fans of Emperor Franz Josef of Austria there, because Franz Josef gave Lviv numerous rights as a city under the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which it hadn't had before. And from my understanding, they essentially thank him very much for that. I literally have, to this day still, on my shelf some coffee memorabilia with Franz Josef's face on it and him pointing to a coffee cup. And speaking of coffee, I think it's pretty fair to call Lviv the coffee capital of, if not the continent, then certainly Eastern Europe. I don't know if you guys are familiar with like pick and mix, where you walk into a sweet shop and you basically fill up a bag with all these different types of sweets and then you bring it to the checkout and they're like, oh, this costs 10 times more than you're expecting. Well, Picture that, without the egregious expense, picture that with coffee beans. There were several streets, now obviously my lack of Ukrainian stopped me really exploring these things, but there were several streets where you could basically go into a shop, choose from a very wide variety of coffee beans, taste, texture, smell, all this kind of thing, and decide exactly, precisely, down to the gram and microgram, what kind of coffee you wanted and the impact you wanted it to have on your life. Now, I came away with some really amazing coffee beans, and I also drank far too much coffee than any man should while in Ukraine, but you can probably imagine how wonderful these streets smelled and how great the city smelled in general. You just get wafts of coffee blasting into your face at several times. So it was a mixture of looking at that. Me and Svatoslav visited some really cool places, some great museums. I got a real good feel of the culture and had some great conversations with him because if it wasn't obvious already, being the youngest parliamentarian in Ukraine's history, Svatoslav Yurash is basically a genius. And I'm not sure how far he's going to go in Ukrainian politics, but I'm pretty sure the sky's the limit for this guy. I remember talking to him about some re I think it was like the War of the League of Cambrai, which is like one of my favorite conflicts in history in like the early 1500s. And the reason why I love it is because everyone basically changed sides numerous times. And he was a- he was able to be like, oh yes, and this happened and this happened. And he basically knew more about it than I did. And uh, several examples of that happened already. The guy's head is just stuffed full of knowledge. So... Yeah, that combined with political acumen and an awareness of where his country sits in the world, I really expect great things for Mr. Yurash. That's all to say I got a really good feel for Ukraine as a country, and I talked to Svatoslav about several different, mostly Russian-related topics when it came to some of the tensions involved. 
just to give you an idea before I traveled there, I had some idea of what had happened. By that stage, of course, Russia had annexed the Crimea and it had occupied the two, and I'm saying this in air quotes, republics of Donetsk and Luhansk, which are in the east of the country. And understandably, Svalislav was very upset about this and he was able to explain to me basically that Putin doesn't recognize Ukraine as a country and he wants Ukraine and Russia to be the same country. And hearing this two years ago, I was just struck by how ridiculous it was that someone next door to your country doesn't accept the fact of your country or its right to exist. It just all seemed insane to me. Boy, if I only had any idea what was about to happen from that insane man's actions. But after absorbing all that information, I went home and fully planned to do some kind of episode about it, some kind of talk about it, but I don't know, things just got away from me and I kind of just kept it as a really pleasant memory. And then in the last few months, kind of like last year, about like October, November, when the Russians really started to mobilize troops on the Ukrainian border and the fighting really intensified, which by the way, already by late last year, Ukrainians had lost about 13,000 soldiers just for the sake of fighting the Russians in their border areas. And some people might say, oh, they weren't fighting Russians, they were fighting Russian separatists. And to you, I would say there wouldn't be Russian separatists without the Russian government in the first place, financing them, and in many cases, literally just creating them out of thin air. People who are in charge of these so-called republics are linked heavily to the Russian army and to the FSB. So that should give you some kind of idea how legitimate these republics are and how understandably angry the Ukrainians are in response. But as I learned about how threatening all these activities were on the Ukrainian border, there was a lot of talk from people who weren't all that well informed about how it wasn't Putin's fault, about how it was all due to NATO's expansion and it was Western aggression all over again. Look what they did in Libya. Look what they did in the Gulf War. Look about when they shelled Bosnia during the Yugoslav Wars. This is just history repeating itself. I'd like to think those people have been proved ridiculously wrong. We'll get more into that later on in the episode, but I do think it deserves mentioning that Ukrainians have been at war with Russia, even though it's an undeclared war. They've been at war with Russia and their proxies for near on eight years. Those children born at the beginning of this conflict in 2014, when the Russians invaded and then occupied and annexed the Crimea, they're eight years old now. So those children will have known only this period of hostility, which obviously, tragically, has reached its climax in the last fortnight. Again, though, when trying to find out information, I, and this is one of first of many recommendations I'm going to give you guys, for those of you who want to listen to where I get my sources for international relations and diplomacy, I would really recommend the Monocle 24 podcast, which is very well researched and very well done. And in November of last year, I listened to a podcast where essentially the host of the of this Monocle 24 podcast, basically his sources said that no matter what Putin might claim about whatever the issue is with NATO or anything else, what it boils down to is the fact that Putin doesn't recognize Ukraine as a nation. It doesn't recognize its right to exist as a nation state. 
And this really struck a chord with me. It was like being reminded about what Svatoslav Yurash had told me when I was in Lviv and talking to him about this exact subject. So because it, those things gelled together, I was certainly more inclined to see things that way. As time passed, as the weeks passed, and the situation grew more and more tense, even though I had this understanding of what was going on on the Ukrainian border with Russia, it still seemed like many people didn't have this understanding. So for a while, I actually toyed with basically doing an episode, it seems insane now, I toyed with doing an episode on why the tension in the Russo-Ukrainian border is even happening in the first place, what Putin's position is, etc, etc. And even when I tried to kind of plan that episode, it just seemed insane. Like, all of this now seems insane. I mean, watching the biggest refugee crisis since the Second World War is just insanity. And that's another thing as well. Hearing up to the final minute, it just did not seem possible that any of this would happen. And I know it's I'm preaching to the choir here because I'm sure none of you guys expected like hindsight is 2020 you might say and as as my wife said what was he going to use those troops for if he wasn't holding them on the border. But the consequences, the clearly explained consequences, and even back in November, even listening to that podcast on Monocle 24, they were saying that the refugee crisis would be like unlike anything we'd seen in living memory. And, of course, they were correct in that. But to me, that just seemed like another reason why Russia couldn't possibly intervene. And, yeah, all along in the unfolding crisis of the last few months, I just found it so difficult to believe that they would actually invade, mostly because the consequences for Russia would be so incredibly dire. And as events have proved, they have in fact been dire. Russia is the most sanctioned country in the world right now. Which must mean that Russia is even more sanctioned than North Korea, which surely isn't something that you want to put on your resume. But looking at all this, looking at all the facts and figures which seemed to count against Russia invading and declaring war on Ukraine and trying to balance that with Putin's insane ideology, which said that Ukraine doesn't exist and they're basically one nation. Trying to balance that was very difficult, but I kept coming back to the same, well, I suppose you could call them reassuring self-delusions over and over again. The idea that a country could launch an invasion of another country in this information age where we're never, we've never been more well informed with, I, for me, the main source is Twitter. I'm basically just refreshing Twitter all the time to try and find out the latest information about Ukraine. But it's just, it, it didn't seem like a, a rational policy for a country to subject itself to such condemnation and to such clear cases where it had violated international law and really just essentially declared war on morality in a way. It just didn't seem possible that a country would do such a thing when everyone now has the power, citizens and governments alike, to look at what you're doing and cast judgment upon you. Considering how Russia, how Putin liked to operate essentially from the shadows, poisoning or bumping off his rivals, etc, etc, or engaging in ridiculous campaigns that normally don't make Western governments bat too much of an eyelid, such as Georgia or Chechnya, 
it seemed really against his character to subject Russia to all of that pressure and condemnation. And past Zach would never have believed future Zach if he told him that this would happen. In my case, it's a failure of imagination that a dictator would go this far to get what he wants. But he has. And this is the situation we're in now. But let's look at this conflict, not necessarily from its roots, because the roots of this conflict is Vladimir Putin. Let's make that very clear. But the annexation of the Crimea and the occupation of those republics and using those republics, again, I'm using the term republics because it's easy, but I don't recognize them as republics and you shouldn't either. They only exist because Russia wants them to. But essentially using those republics as an excuse As a pretext, it seems as though this was Putin's plan all along. Or at least that he thought it could be useful to undermine Ukrainian stability and security by propping up these republics and then claiming genocide. I shouldn't have to tell you guys that falsely claiming something as atrocious as genocide, which really I think you could call it the defining crime of the 20th century, Using that in a time when Russia was marking its annual parade for losses in the Second World War, the Great Patriotic War, there was something so obscene about falsely claiming genocide while also marking the real genocide of the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. And yet clearly, Putin doesn't really have as much shame as I or many people expected him to because he just ploughed ahead with this regardless. Despite the fact that there is no evidence of genocide, despite the fact that genocide, to clue all of us in, genocide means the deliberate intention to exterminate, remove a entire culture or people. It doesn't mean you killed a few people and that's that. The key, just like with murder, the key is intent. It can't be accidental. And I do have a problem with using genocide as a term when there is no real grounds for it. I would argue that we should be rallying against any false use of the term because it cheapens it. It really does cheapen it. If genocide is the worst thing humans can engage in, if it is the worst policy that a state can follow then it should be a shocking accusation and it should only be used when there's clear evidence. Otherwise we risk the possibility that people might not bat an eyelid, they might not care about real accusations of genocide because they've been so desensitized to the whole term because they've heard it so many times and they aren't qualified or really informed enough to distinguish between real or fake accusations. I could talk for a while about this. I did this political genocide subject in university during my master's and it really opened my eyes to all of this stuff and how language matters, especially on the world stage. And yes, I recognize not everyone can do a master's degree, but there's really no excuse for what the Russians are doing with the term genocide. And I think it is very good. It's a very good thing that the Ukrainians are taking Russia to the International Criminal Court about this. And they are charging them with manufacturing genocide as a term. And I think that's right. And I think we have to protect against any insincere use of the term. Throwing out aspersions of genocide is just so wrongheaded. And trying to use blatantly false claims as a pretext for invasion. Putin going on TV and claiming that 
because of the genocide happening in republics that he created that wouldn't exist without him claiming that as a pretext, I think it tells us an awful lot about Putin's character. And I want to talk about that speech as well, because Putin's made a lot of speeches since this all kicked off in the last few weeks. One of them, though, was of particular note. It was either the day of or the day before the actual invasion took place. And in that, a very angry Putin read a speech which only he could have written. Putin has been known in the past for writing these insanely anti-historical, I suppose you could call them ramblings, treatises, whatever you want to call them, but essentially it came from his mind and his pen and it just warped history to a really incredible degree and it involved Putin basically saying that Ukraine had no right to exist, that Ukraine was not a nation, that Ukraine didn't deserve any place on the international stage and that Ukraine's natural position in the world is, if not subservient to Russia, then basically just part of Russia. And that really is what Putin is basing his war on. We shouldn't be tripped up by any claims of NATO or genocide or recent efforts by Russians to manufacture some wild claim that the Ukrainians are investing in nuclear weaponry or biological weapons or something like that. It's all a smokescreen, guys, for what Putin really wants to do, which is annex Ukraine and keep it under the Russian orbit. You could argue that that is security-related to a degree, because Ukraine borders the EU, and if Ukraine joins the EU or NATO, then that means Russia has a border with either of those blocs. But at the basis of that stance isn't security for Putin, it's ideology. And it's the same ideology that has powered his activity throughout the last few years. And it's culminated in the last few weeks. But we shouldn't look at this as legitimate security concerns. And I think the messaging coming out from Russia's official foreign ministry should give us a very clear indication of the, I wouldn't even say shaky ideological ground, I'd say non-existent ground that they exist on when they're trying to claim for a pretext for invading Ukraine. At this stage, their position is so untenable, the only way they can keep going with this conflict, keep going with this war that they started, is to just deliver lie after lie again and again. And I should make that very clear. Putin's position on all of this is... A lie. It's based on a lie. Ukraine is a country. Ukraine and Ukrainians are distinct from Russians. They even have their own different Orthodox Church. There's a Ukrainian Orthodox Church and a Russian Orthodox Church. You'd be unsurprised to know that the Russian Orthodox Church has made inroads into Ukraine, and it's often used as a political vehicle, as we've seen in the last few weeks, by what the Russian Orthodox Church has done. Now, some might claim, if they don't know that there's a Ukrainian Orthodox Church, some might claim that Orthodoxy and Orthodox nations should come together, and here is the Orthodox Patriarch saying this, and saying that and we should listen to him and make peace and everything. This is just what I imagine Russians are hoping will happen. But of course, it's not as simple as that. None of this is so simple as that. But on the other hand, what it does boil down to is one man's ludicrous ideology. And if you're getting Hitler flashbacks right now, yeah, I mean, that's been thrown around quite a lot. And on the one hand, there is only one Hitler. 
there is only one person who caused the Second World War. There is only one man responsible for all that indescribably awful stuff. But at the same time, you can't really ignore the parallels. The arrogance of a man who's been in power and been unchallenged for so long as Putin has been. The completely out-of-touch way in which he addresses the Russian people. The fact that in order to hold on to power, he has to engage in terror and repression and suppressing all other news sources except those approved by the Russian state. I mean, that really should give us flashbacks of the Nazis, shouldn't it? And if not the Nazis, then at the very least of Stalin. And now again, I want to talk about something which I've seen... Uh, kind of thrown around without any real evidence to support it. I'm talking about in 2014 when the Russians invaded. And I know I talked about this a minute ago, but some a little qualifying point has to be given here. The idea that the Ukrainians were basically sponsored by the United States to kick out the Russians and find their own path, and that the Euromaidan protests and Essentially, the revolution that followed was not of Ukrainian making, but was of American making. I mean, all of that is ludicrous. And it also ignores how seriously Ukrainians view this event. Even talking to Svatoslav and seeing in various cafes and restaurants around Kiev, around Lviv, there were photos of this happening, especially in Kiev where the revolution, the protests actually happened. I mean, to kick off those protests against the incumbent president, the pro-Russian Viktor Yanukovych, that all started really because pro-European, pro-EU, pro-West, whatever you want to call them, those protesters were shot at and killed. I think up to 120 plus were actually murdered by Yanukovych's regime and whenever they talk about, oh, it was an American-sponsored revolution, sponsored by the CIA and people get their tinfoil hats on and there's something called Occam's Razor which is like the simplest explanation is essentially the right one and does it not strike us as kind of self-explanatory that Ukrainians would not want to be shot at by their president's forces does it not strike us as kind of obvious that they'd want to pick their own path and that they want to get rid of the leaders that are trying to stop them doing that Like, to me, it makes perfect sense. And I think there's a tendency in some cases to just overcomplicate all of this and try and find conspiracies where there are no conspiracies to be found. And I suppose people have been flexing these muscles during COVID and whatever else has been going on in the last few years. Nothing much, really. So because of that, maybe they're so used to it that they're just able to trot these conspiracies out. And I've seen them... I've seen them, like, treated as gospel and retweeted and commented under. And anytime anything Ukrainian is talked about, people would follow up with, well, it wasn't Russia's fault that the CIA intervened and etc, etc. I mean, come on. I mean, I'm not going to say anything more about it because to me it's just ludicrous. But ask a Ukrainian how, like, how they feel about Russia. I mean, it's kind of hard to get, a obviously, an unbiased picture now, but I can assure you personally that the Ukrainians I talked to, I must have talked to about 20 Ukrainians when I was actually in Kiev and Lviv, and during that time, they were all very adamant about the point of Ukraine having its own destiny and everything else. It's clear to me that the United States played no role because they didn't need to. Ukrainians were well capable of doing it by themselves. I don't really like to engage in conspiracies because I feel like when we do, we elevate them to 
the level of a kind of reasoned debate and I don't want to do that. But I just felt I had to address that because if nothing else, any time they talk about 2014, these conspiracy theorists, they never actually mention the fact that Ukrainians actually died during those protests. And their faces, by the way, are emblazoned on a roundabout in Kiev. You can't miss it if you go to Kiev itself. So I'm sure that area is horribly bombed now, but there you go. Another thing I should add, I really should have mentioned this earlier, but everywhere I went in Ukraine, whether it was in Kiev or in Lviv or even in the airports of either of those places, any shop I went into, they had these collection boxes. And those collection boxes were for the Ukrainian army. Yes, the Ukrainian people were helping to fund the army that was fighting for their independence. So any claims that all of this was done by the CIA or America or what have you are ridiculous. Ukrainians were well able and well willing to fight for their independence against Russia. And they've been doing so for eight plus years I should add as well that on the day that the Russians actually invaded, on the 24th of February 2022, Ukrainians personally raised more than 600,000, I think it was $600,000, it might have been euros, or could even have been pounds, jeepers, I can't remember. It was 600,000 of one of those currencies in any case, and that was literally the record for money being raised in a single day. So Ukrainians are showing their patriotism, and that was before the bulk of the invasion had actually occurred. So they'd been inured to this state of war between Russia and Ukraine for the last few years. And it is a state of war. Let's not make any mistake about it. The Russians invaded and seized the Crimea. They annexed it into Russia, and they did the same, or they tried to do the same, for those republics. Let's not be under any illusions. And the latest information about peace talks, we'll talk more about this later on, but just to give you a a bit of context, that the latest information on these peace talks is that basically Russia will allow Zelensky to remain in place if Ukraine changes its constitution and promises never to join NATO, and also recognizes Russia's occupation of Ukraine, and of course recognizes the independence of those two republics. And can you imagine if Zelensky actually did that? He said no, probably quicker than he'd actually read the thing, because let alone the fact that why would you trust anything the Russians offer you, especially when they're clearly on the back foot in this conflict, but why would you accept terms that put you in an even more vulnerable position to be attacked down the line? Why would you sever any potential link you could have with the West? It just, it doesn't make sense. And to me, it's a clear indication of what the Russians are trying to do here. They're not just trying to take Ukraine, they're trying to isolate it and cut it off from the rest of the world. Ironically, by doing so, they've cut themselves off from the rest of the world. Now, for those that are saying right now, but Crimea, Crimea is mostly Russian-speaking, and so are those Eastern republics. Well, to you I would say, if Russian-speaking means that you're Russian, then does English-speaking mean that you're English? If If that is the case, then I guess I'm not Irish. I guess Australian people aren't Australians, and I guess you Americans listening, well, guess what? You're actually British. So, that kind of characterization doesn't really work, and even the use of claiming like claiming genocide against a nationality is eerily familiar of what Hitler tried to do with the Sudetenland and then with Gdansk and anytime anyone tries to claim a clear black or white you speak this language you are this nationality that should really set us red flags because 
the reality is we're not so black and white as that. As people, we're not. We exist in shades of grey. And that's even shown by the fact that, like, Ukrainians have Russian relatives and vice versa. Ukrainians live and study and work in Russia. Russians live, study and work in Ukraine. Before all this mess happened with Putin, before he engineered these series of crises, the latest one being the invasion, of course, Russians and Ukrainians got on fine. There doesn't seem to be this unifying desire among Russians to take over all of Ukraine. They might recognize one another as brothers, but like brothers can exist side by side without attacking each other. It would be hilarious. That's the problem with Russia's communications lately. They would be hilarious if they weren't so tragic. Maybe in a few decades' time, we might see them as darkly comic. But so long as the casualties keep piling up, it's very difficult to feel anything other than anger when Russia tries to claim that its real intention is to basically free Ukraine and give it independence and stop it being used for warlike purposes. I mean... You just couldn't make this up, and that's why I think I never could have imagined all of this happening in the first place. So we've talked a lot about 2014 and the annexation of Crimea and all that other stuff. Let's fast forward a bit to about six months ago, when the Russians really started to mobilize troops on the Ukrainian border. I really did keep up to date with this, mostly because I was very anxious about what was going to happen. I was honestly very worried about... Ukraine's future. I was thinking of Svatoslav, I was thinking of his family, I was worried about what would happen to Ukraine as a country and the Ukrainian people. I obviously did not want a war, but I also knew that Ukraine was a proudly independent country, and that at the same time, by the same measure, Putin had no right to just demand that this independent country stop being independent. So, as the numbers of Russian soldiers grew from 20 to 50... Like, I remember when there was 15,000 Russian soldiers there. Like, go figure. And it grew to 50 and then 100 and then 150,000 by the end of January. And I was watching this thinking to myself, like, is this the end? Like, is Ukraine not going to be able to stand up to this? I didn't even know at that stage the size of Ukraine's army. It's actually one of the biggest standing armies in Europe. And after eight years of fighting against the Russians, it's also one of the most experienced and well-supplied thanks to all the Western provisions. Do you remember now? It seems insane to think of a time before this war. But do you remember when Putin and Sergei Lavrov were trying to say that it was hysteria and that the West was trying to cause a war? Do you remember when Biden warned everyone about what the Russians were trying to do and brought forward all of this intelligence and people were like, oh, you're warmongering, you're just trying to have a war to increase your popularity? It it always boggles my mind when people accuse American presidents of starting wars to improve their popularity. Aside from maybe FDR, when is the last president that, like, entered into a war and then benefited from it? Like, I just don't see how you could possibly think that Biden would want a war in Ukraine to make himself look good. I I just don't think anyone cares about their career that much. Maybe they do in some strange Freemasonry alternative history circles, but... From what I'm seeing, it just doesn't really gel with reality. Let's remember back to that part of our recent history where all of these very public, very clear, very intimidating Russian military manoeuvres on the Ukrainian border were taking place. 
And let's remember that the Russians sent loads of troops into Belarus and it looked as though Ukraine was surrounded, when you consider Crimea as well, on three fronts. So to me, it just seemed impossible that Ukraine, I mean, that any country could resist an attack on three fronts. And I'm sure the Russians thought this as well. Their whole plan of attack was based on the idea that if we attack them on three fronts, they'll basically give in because no country can resist. And again, my imagination failed. I didn't see how any of this was going to pan out. And I certainly didn't see how the Ukrainians were going to cope, but cope they did. Do you remember as well when the Russians were shelling those positions for like a week in those so-called republics and basically waiting for Ukraine to retaliate and Ukraine just didn't because they knew exactly what the Russians were trying to do? Like, it just seems so obvious now how awful and clearly malignant Russian intentions were. But again, my imagination failed in that respect. So in many ways, I just didn't see this war coming. And really, the fact that the Ukrainians didn't take the bait, the fact that they didn't respond, the fact that the Ukrainian president didn't go on TV and say, enough is enough, we're taking back these republics with overwhelming force or whatever, the fact that they didn't give Putin an excuse, that should have really signaled to Putin that he wasn't dealing with some run-of-the-mill idiot that he'd be able to manipulate or that he'd be able to buy or that he'd be able to overwhelm. It should really have given him a kind of taste for what was to come, but Putin didn't see the signs. He proceeded with a plan, and, and who knows how long Putin has had this plan for? Who knows if he was just doing this haphazardly? He had this ad hoc plan where he tried for weeks through all those negotiations, all those visits by Western leaders and everything else. And I remember listening to so many podcasts that were trying to predict how all this would pan out in like January and early February, early to mid-February, where they were trying to imagine what the Russians would do next. And even there were some times when it seemed like the tension had been reduced. There were a few days where there were no casualties at all in the Ukrainian army in those border areas. And it almost seemed like things were calming down a little bit and that things might really just be resolved. And at the same time, you have in the back of your mind that if Putin did just retreat, that would look bad for him. But then you also balance that with the now familiar refrain that I kept telling myself, no sane leader is going to launch a war in the 21st century with all the information technology we'd have at our disposal. It would be suicide. And at the very least, I think Putin has proved that to be correct. But then, after weeks of trying to predict it, after weeks of mobilising troops and piling up the troops on the border and trying to get what you wanted by intimidation or diplomacy, after welcoming so many different foreign dignitaries, ranging from the French to the American to heads of European, Russia had all the attention it could possibly have wanted. And some may even have thought that all they wanted was attention. All they wanted was some token signal that they were a great power and then they would back down. Then, on the morning of the 24th of February 2022, what I would describe as the unthinkable happened. Using the most wafer-thin pretext that they could fashion, to the effect that 
the republics had requested Russian help to defend themselves against the genocide inflicted upon them by Ukraine. I mean, like, what mental acrobatics do you have to engage with to see any of those Russian claims as legitimate? And the fact that they kept straight faces, the Russians did, while even saying those words just should tell you all you need to know about the Russian leadership. But in any case, with that ridiculous pretext, the Russians announced that they were sending in troops and it was a special military operation we were told as far as what that military operation was supposed to achieve we were told that it was going to denazify ukraine and that it was going to get rid of the current cabal of putin literally called them drug dealers and drug abusers and all sorts of other unflattering terms but Now, I watched that speech, and I think my mouth was open for most of it, because it just seemed impossible that he would do this, that he would subject himself to such condemnation. We heard from so many people for so long that Putin was waiting for a real, actual pretext, and that he would use some kind of false flag if he couldn't find one himself. So I think we were probably expecting a more sophisticated excuse to actually get involved in Ukraine, something which might even confuse people because we keep hearing about how effective the Russians are at cyber warfare. They'll maybe create this video of Ukrainians shooting children or I don't know, like you could imagine anything, but they didn't even do that. It was it was almost pathetic. It was just like this claim that they were the Russians were being invited in because the republics that they had created wanted protection from a genocide that the whole world knew wasn't happening, let alone the Ukrainians, who had barely been engaging with the provocations for the week before. To see the Russians use this as their famed pretext, I th- it was kind of anticlimactic, and I think, for me anyway... The fact that it was so clearly paper-thin as an excuse, I almost didn't take their special military operations seriously, and maybe that was the intention. Maybe they expected the world to just look away because they weren't calling it a war. But that morning on the 24th, when the shelling increased and tanks and everything started crossing over the Ukrainian border, throughout that day, it was a Friday, throughout that day, I was just in shock and I met my friend in Dublin and we were talking about it and we were just watching the news and we just were like is this actually happening and still to this day like me and my wife are saying the exact same thing and I can only imagine what it's like for Ukrainians who are just stunned whether you're a refugee or whether you're fleeing the building you've lived in all your life because it's been shelled by a country that professes to be your brother like You couldn't make any of this up, and really, when they say history is stranger than fiction, we're living through a very strange period of history right now. A tragic period, of course, but when people examine this time in 50 years or so, they'll really be confused. I mean, I just, it's still, I'm just having trouble processing it for you guys even now. It just feels so unreal that this is actually happening in 2022 let alone after all the crap we've been through with COVID and global warming, where if the world's not on fire or drowning, people are dying of some horrible disease, and then Putin comes along and decides to literally disrupt the entire world's economy. And that's another thing. It's not just the diplomatic consequences. Like, just just to give you an indication of how far-reaching the consequences of this conflict are, Ukraine and Russia together produce about 30% of the world's wheat crop. So... 
without that, with that being dislocated and with people not being able to access that, Ireland's government is trying to make farmers in Ireland plant tillage crop as a certain percentage of of the agriculture they engage in. I'm not a farmer, you know that. But really, this this is a direct consequence of the fact that there's going to be less wheat available in the world. And in parts of the world that for so long have been struggling and struggling with acute problems of starvation and famine, like Yemen, like Afghanistan, like so many other places that we just don't hear about anymore, this is like a death sentence. And it just, let alone from the fact that it's so unjust what Putin is doing, but the widespread consequences of this, they just damn him even more as a terrible, terrible human being. I don't think I've ever hated someone so much that has been alive, except except maybe Donald Trump, but that's another story. So you see these consequences and you see the wafer-thin excuse for actually invading in the first place. And it, it all creates this kind of element of like unreality and maybe Putin expected to thrive in that. Maybe he thought that while people were standing around shell-shocked he'd be able to take advantage of this situation. His tanks would roll in from three directions all the cities would collapse Zelensky would be captured or killed or would go into exile and I don't know I'm just trying to predict the best case scenario for Russia in, in in that situation. And even then even in that best case scenario even if he expected minimal disruption, which they expected some disruption, the Russians did. They expected some elements of condemnation because we know we've we've read those leaked documents. We know what they were planning. And I'll talk about one particular leaked document in a minute. But they knew that there would be consequences for this. And for what? Like, what did Russia really want from this invasion? At the end of the day, and again, this was another reason trotted out as to why Putin wouldn't invade, by the way, At the end of the day, if he got everything he wanted, it would still, Ukraine would still only be as good a situation for him as it had been in 2014. So, eight years on, he's still trying to reverse history, turn the clock back, and, incredible as this might sound, inflict President Yanukovych upon the Ukrainians, who they'd already kicked out twice by 2014, it just goes to show how little he thought of the Ukrainians, that he thought they'd, they'd just accept Yanukovych back again for the third time. And they'd say, OK, we had our we had our flutter with independence. We're ready to be a Russian vassal now. Welcome back, Moscow. It just boggles the mind how out of touch he could be and how completely wrong he could be about so many different aspects of this thing. And I think there's a tendency to get distracted by that. Maybe he thought we would be distracted. He certainly thought that there wouldn't be so much solidarity. He did not expect the EU and the UK even to cooperate, even from this document which was released on the 26th. Let's just talk about it now. There was essentially, I'll I'll provide a link to this Twitter thread which basically brings this forward, but a Russian approved, because you can't be a news agency unless you are Russian approved, a state-approved news agency in Russia released this document on the 26th of February, so basically two days after the invasion. And this document was really supposed to be released in the event of a successful Russian invasion. I'm not sure if they set it to automatically release and didn't think to change it, or if someone just pressed the wrong button or whatever. I don't know. But either way, it gives us a fascinating insight into, at the very least, how these news organisations were told to portray all of this. 
And of course, because they're talking about this and because this document was leaked, they're talking about an event where Ukraine does collapse and Russia gets the triumph that it wants. And the language being used here, I'll just give you a, a flavour for some of it. Uh, the the more Some of the more egregious extracts from this document read that the main issue was the complex of a divided nation and a complex of national humiliation when the Russian house began to lose part of its foundation and was then forced to reconcile itself to the existence of two states of not one but two peoples. And the answer to this was to kill Ukraine's sovereignty. As the document continues, Now this problem no longer exists. Ukraine has returned to Russia. This doesn't mean that its statehood will be liquidated, but it will be restructured, re-established and returned to its natural condition as part of the Russian world. And you might be wondering what kind of borders and form this would have. Well, according to this document, questions like these will be decided when we have placed a firm full stop to the history of a Ukraine as an anti-Russian entity. And then the author starts to talk about the West. Did anyone in Paris and Berlin seriously believe that Moscow would give up Kiev? The West as a whole, and Europe in particular, lacked the strength to keep Ukraine within its sphere of influence, let alone to take Ukraine for itself. The rest of the world sees and understands perfectly well. This is a conflict between Russia and the West. This is a response to the geopolitical expansion of the Atlanticists. This is Russia's recovering its historic space and place in the world. The author of this Twitter thread, who basically pieced all these extracts together, then his name is Thomas DeWall, and I'll link him in the show notes, but he said, Let me add one caveat. We can't know that the article reflects the Kremlin's intentions, only that a big news agency commissioned it to celebrate victory, and it also rhymes with Putin's big speech last week. Let's hope other views prevail. Now, this was written on the 26th of February, so obviously since then the situation has become very different. But this idea of returning Ukraine to its natural position in the world, I mean, it's natural according to Russia. It's not natural at all according to Ukraine. And certainly since all this has happened, the natural situation, as far as Ukrainians are concerned, will not at all be anything like what this news organization is describing. But I just thought that was an interesting kind of window. It's also quite chilling as well, because in some dark timeline where... Ukraine has been defeated and the worst has happened. This is how the Russians planned to proceed. And it should show us as well, not just that the news agencies have been told to march in step with Putin's ludicrous views, but also that Russia's offer to Ukraine, Russia's vision for Ukraine, it doesn't really extend very much further outside of the kind of very debatable and not very popular views that Ukraine is just a part of Russia. Like, as I said at the beginning of this episode, having talked to Ukrainians, having talked to Svatoslav Yurash and all that stuff, Ukrainians don't want this. Any Russian who talked to Ukrainians outside of the minority pro-Russian opinion, which does exist, but it is much smaller than we've probably been led to believe, Anyone talking to the vast majority, say about 90 to 95% of Ukrainians who wanted Ukraine to be independent, they've no appetite for any of this. You might be wondering, after this document was leaked, what did the Russians do then? Well, 
the news agency deleted it, but I think it shows how Russia saw its position. It saw the West as weak and divided, even divided between like Franco-German camp and an Anglo-Saxon camp. It almost sounds more like the Nazis with every every minute that we go by here, guys. I'm not doing it on purpose, but extracts like these where people are classed into racial groups rather than being classed into their mutual interests or kind of positions it just it just smacks of just some unreal like some armchair general trying to rule a country where he has absolutely no idea of how the world works but he has loads of power and people are afraid of him so like that's basically what Putin's position is right now it's really closely akin to Stalin but even Stalin had a better strategic mind than this and he was at least a bit more risk averse than Putin was But the fact that Putin thought he would get away with this just goes to show how out of touch he was. How did he not think that an invasion of an independent country, whether considered to be in Russia's sphere of influence or not, how did he think that that would be, like, unopposed by anyone? We can get too tripped up on these things, but we should move on. But before we do move on, I want to talk a little bit more about Svatoslav Yurash, Ukraine's youngest ever MP, because... In the days after the invasion happened, obviously, I was extremely anxious for the well-being of him and his family. And my dad let me know that he'd seen him appear on Sky News. And this started off the first of many appearances for Svatoslav on a whole range of news agencies, ranging from Sky News Australia to regular Sky News to Fox News to India Today to like all sorts of different places. He's getting the word out and he's communicating the message as clearly as he possibly can. I'm going to play for you now a clip of basically the first interview that I saw of Svatoslav Yurash. And listen to what he says in particular about Putin's position and about how and why Ukrainians must resist because the alternative is to really have no future at all. What you're going to hear in this clip is Svatoslav Yurash walking through the streets of Kiev in the very late evening of the 25th of February. So, of course, the actual war has moved on since the 25th of February. But again, listen to what Svatoslav Yurash says, and then imagine those views being held by pretty much everyone else in Ukraine. You'll also hear the voice of the UK newsreader. So, listen in. And I'll talk to you after. I will be joining with the fighting for Kiev because there's no other choice now. We have fought in Kiev today. We have had Russian incursion in the north of the city. We have Russian columns heading for the north and for the eastern part of town. And we have to stand our ground. This is our capital, which we, we cannot give up. My family, I am from the western Ukraine. So my family is there. And even though Every city in Ukraine and my hometown as well were hit by uh, by missiles from Russia and different kinds of attacks. Still, they are safe for them here, but I'm staying in the capital because that's the only honorable thing to do for a person who wants to his country to survive this onslaught. And if the Russians come into the capital, would you stay in the capital or would you then leave? They are in the capital. Today, they'll be fighting in the north of the city. And they are dropping rockets. I hear the explosions as I'm walking to the center of town, to the area where the presidential administration made an appeal today 
to citizens of Ukraine showing the president is here, prime minister is here, leadership is here to defend our capital, not to allow Russians to win, no matter what. And if uh, the Russians do come in and put in another government and remove President Zelensky, how would the people of Kiev and the people of Ukraine react to that? It's not about the government, it's not about Zelensky. Mr. Putin made a long, hour-long speech that the whole world can see, available to you every, on every social media. That speech is about his firm belief that Ukraine is not a nation, Ukraine is not a state. And that he wants to take over Ukraine. He wants Ukraine to be a part of Russia. Ukrainians, by every measure, every poll, don't agree with that statement. So we are going to fight with everything we got to the very end to keep our nation away from him. And do you see a long war of resistance? If they come in and they topple the government, do you see a war of resistance happening? I was born after the Soviet Union. I only know Ukraine. And there are millions like me who do not even dare to presume anything else but independent Ukraine. And we will fight to keep that independent Ukraine a reality, no matter the Putin, what Putin puts on the table, no matter what he puts against us. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So that's Svatoslav Yurash, and hopefully you have a bit of a, an idea for the background of this conflict, like why Ukrainians want to resist, why they have a right to independence, why they absolutely do not want to be part of whatever Putin has in mind, etc., etc. We're going to shift gears a little bit now, though, and talk about diplomacy, because something which a lot of people have asked me since this happened is, well, in many cases, they haven't even asked me. They just literally said, Looks like diplomacy failed in Ukraine. 
And I kind of take issue with that because I it's it's something I kind of like to call the the Hitler complex where you basically have a figure who is going to pursue war no matter what and no matter what kind of offers are put in front of him unless it's everything his heart desires via diplomacy which would really be like appeasement on steroids. Even in 1939 they weren't willing to do that and in 2022 it was the same story. So to claim that Putin invading Ukraine is a failure of diplomacy is correct at least on some level because technically diplomacy couldn't stop the war. But I don't really believe that any combination of diplomatic offers except everything Putin desired and I don't think even he was expecting to get everything he desired by diplomacy. In that situation, I think there's nothing diplomacy could have done. Diplomacy has been essentially bypassed because you're pursuing a policy of war instead. And if you're pursuing a policy of war, you can't pursue a policy of diplomacy. It just doesn't make sense. So what really seems likely when they were engaging in those diplomatic overtures, when they were having all those different figures over, it seems likely to me at least that the Russians were trying to buy time. Maybe they were trying to wait for more ideal weather conditions. Maybe Putin was expecting some kind of rift to occur between the West and between Ukraine. Maybe he was expecting Ukraine to take the bait and do something provocative. We don't know. But what we do know is that diplomacy failed because Putin wanted it to fail. There was no real way around Putin wanting war. As soon as he decided on war, no different to when Hitler decided on war in 1939, no no amount of diplomatic negotiation could have stopped him. But does that mean diplomacy has failed, is failing, and will continue to fail in this conflict? Well, no, because I want to talk about something that's often not talked about in the context of war, and that is wartime diplomacy. And if it's possible to bypass diplomacy in order to get to war, the only way to end war is through diplomacy. Even after defeating your enemies, you still have to talk to them, you still have to negotiate with them, unless you're negotiating with a nuclear shell of a country, in which case, probably not much point in staying there anyway. But yeah, there's no real way forward in this conflict without diplomacy. And one of the most effective uses of diplomacy is how Ukraine has not just communicated with the world, but also presented itself to the world. Some people, cynics among us, have decried the Ukrainians for painting the conflict as black and white, for ignoring the more unsavoury aspects of Ukrainian society, for claiming that there's this Nazi element, just as the Russians are saying, and that it's corrupting all of Ukrainian politics and society, and that we're basically just propping up a Nazi regime. I mean, let's clear this out of the way first and foremost. There are Nazis in every country. There are neo-Nazis in Ireland, for goodness sake. There are probably far more neo-Nazis in America than there are in Ukraine. I think that's pretty safe to say. At the same time, there is this thing called the Azov Battalion, made up of people who are very much on the right wing, and who tend to train people in those border areas how to resist the Russians. It gets difficult in these situations because in the case where Ukraine wants to resist Russian aggression, obviously it will take all the support it can get. But I can assure you, having talked to Ukrainians and Ukrainian politicians, like there is a world of difference between neo-Nazis ruling Ukraine, which is not the case at all, and Ukraine being ruled by what we would probably consider in the West a conservative center-right, maybe, maybe right-wing government, 
but certainly nowhere near the level of neo-Nazi that they seem to be claiming. And any time you see this kind of black and white claim, try to consider where it has come from and who has said it in the first place. Let's just say one bad apple, let's say the Azov Battalion is this bad apple here, that does not make the entire orchard rotten as well. Ukrainians are fighting for their independence, they're not fighting for neo-Nazi values, and the real irony in all of this is that it's the Ukrainians who are taking as their country the national symbol. They're the ones who want peace, they want the war to end, whereas the Russians are emblazoning this Z on their uniforms in some cases, and a lot of this is, of course, state-manufactured and everything, but you see these convoys in support of it. And using the Z symbol, I don't speak Russian or Ukrainian, so I can't tell you what it stands for, but it's kind of an unsettling parallel between the Z and the swastika, or even just embracing a symbol to mean an aggressive war against a neighbor. Again, how on earth the Russians can do stuff like this without thinking it would be seen as really disgusting and used against them by Ukrainians and, well, me as well. But let's get back to diplomacy, having dealt with that Nazi idea. Now, thanks to leaked documents, one of which I mentioned earlier, we know that the post-war plan envisioned Ukraine's dissolution. So what would happen in that situation to people like Svatoslav or President Zelensky or, or anyone else in this scenario? And essentially, we can say for certain that they would be facing exile, imprisonment or worse, Something I know for sure is that neither of those individuals, certainly not Svatoslav, as we heard there in that extract from Sky News, Svatoslav would never be content to serve a puppet Ukrainian regime, and of course neither would Zelensky. It would be political and national suicide to do so either way. Diplomacy is the reason why President Zelensky has shot from half a million Twitter followers to nearly 5 million Twitter followers in less than two weeks. A rate of growth that all of us can be envious of. Diplomacy has enabled the world, well with some gross exceptions, to rally against this despicable act of aggression. And on a scale and with determination few could have thought possible. Not only that, diplomacy also concerns finance. You can have diplomatic financial arrangements too. And in this case, diplomacy has cut Russia off from the world's finance, from sport, from culture, from information, and from trade. And as a consequence of this, predictably enough, anyone could have told you that this was going to happen, the Russian ruble has fallen to a record low. And Russians might be well aware of this kind of pattern happening, it's a pattern which seems to follow any aggressive act by Putin, such as the invasion of Georgia 2008 or the invasion of Crimea in 2014 and now in 2022 the invasion of Ukraine proper. In each of those aggressive acts, the ruble fell in value to its now historic low. Diplomacy has also engendered a determination to chase down those oligarchs that grant Putin his power. Diplomacy has been the tool by which the countries in the United Nations and in NATO and in the European Union and then the United States and then mutually between each of these blocks and groups, it's been their vehicle for showing Russia how much they disapprove of their actions. A really unprecedented amount of countries in the United Nations, 141 voted to condemn Russia's active aggression with 35 abstaining and 5 <laughs> essentially voting no. In the company of Russia in voting against the condemnation of their invasion of a 
sovereign country, was Eritrea, Belarus, Russia, of course, North Korea, and I can't remember the fifth country, but yeah, we shouldn't really be under any illusions that Russia is isolated, and it is isolated because diplomacy is working. Diplomacy is working on a level and on a scale really we haven't seen in a very, very, very long time. It'd be as if World War II happened in modern times with the information networks we have and with all the eyes and all the news agencies watching on. It's one thing to wage a war in silence, in isolation, in places far away from prying eyes. But doing it while everyone is watching, while a country is connected to the internet, to people's TVs around the world, etc., etc., is... It's not just risky, it's also, in many respects, suicidal. Diplomacy, as well, has really helped us see how much teeth the European Union has. In the past, the European Union has previously been cast, and mostly by Brexiteers, as an economic or a political bloc with fundamental military weaknesses. Ironically, the Brexiteers cast the European Union as somehow all-powerful and dangerous, but also hilariously weak and something to laugh at. And the inconsistency never seems to be noted by Brexiteers. Anyway, that's a complete other story, but... The Russian invasion has empowered the European Union to tap into its military capabilities, and this really proves what has sometimes been cautiously suggested by a few commentators, that the European Union is a sleeping military giant, and that Russia's actions here have awakened the European Union from that slumber. Nor was the European Union in total the only entity to feel this reality. You might have noticed that Germany increased its percentage of GDP spending on defence from half a percentage to 2%. And this fourfold increase has been requested for decades, mostly by NATO members, of which Germany is a part. And then there's the non-aligned neighbours of Russia in the Baltic, such as Finland or Sweden, neither of whom can be under any illusions now about what it means to be outside of NATO and then be attacked by Russia. Finland, which shares one of the largest borders with Russia, and which has grievances with Russia dating back to the Winter War of 1939-40, where, in a kind of mirror image of what is happening now, the Russians completely underestimated their opponent and really ruined their odds in that conflict against Finland, before eventually wearing them down with weight of numbers. But the Russians seized a large portion of Finnish territory in that conflict, and still haven't given it back. There's every possibility that the Russians will try and attack again, and to think that they won't do so, purely because Finland is not Ukraine, and there's no kind of narrative of a brother and brother relationship, as there is with Ukraine and Russia, it's to underestimate Putin's aggression. And the Finns aren't taking any chances. Both the Finns and the Swedes have made noise in the last few weeks about joining NATO. And NATO, as a subject, has ranged from taboo to just not really interesting to those countries in the past. And I know I'm generalizing for effect here. Swedes and Finns can correct me. By the way, thank you guys for listening. And it's really amazing to me that English isn't even your first language and you're still listening to me ramble on here. I certainly noticed that when the Finns and the Swedes suggested joining NATO, the Russians came along with their very helpful threat that 
any joining of NATO would be seen as a as as a threat against Russia and would be dealt with appropriately, basically just throwing out threats and casting themselves even further as the enemy of all peace loving Europeans. Like it, it I just it's just such bad strategy. Why would you do this? Anyway, rant over. But clearly those countries that existed outside of NATO but were near Russia's border they have a lot to think about now, and they won't be just assuming that because peace has been the norm that it will continue to be the norm. They might try and change the status quo, and it could be to the disadvantage of Russia. And in that situation, you can really say Russia only has itself to blame. You can already blame the Finns or the Swedes for seeing what's happening in Ukraine and thinking that they feel safe anymore. They don't feel safe, and they they can't trust anything that comes out of the Russian government's official organs. And that's another theme that deserves to be explored. The consequence of making yourself an international pariah isn't just that you're cut off from everything. It's that your words aren't trusted anymore. It's a kind of... It's it's a version of honour as I'm looking at in my thesis, except instead of national honour or prestige, you could just say that the country isn't trusted to the same extent that it used to be especially after all the lies that have been told, after accusing us of hysteria for so long, they go ahead and do the thing they said they weren't going to do. But I digress. I'm sure my Swedish listeners were aware that a few days after suggesting they might join NATO, Russian planes violated Swedish airspace. Again, another clear symbol that Russia is not behaving as a civilized or peaceful country should. Clearly, since the signal failure of diplomacy to stop Putin, not that it realistically could, diplomacy has become the sword wielded by all concerned states in the world. And as I suspected, the aggressor was bound to suffer in the internet age because people are more well-informed now than ever before. So let's talk about sanctions then, which are a functional element of diplomacy, because in order to arrange these sanctions, well, first of all, in order for sanctions to be effective, you have to make sure that a wide variety of countries are going to impose them. And how can you do that except by engaging in diplomacy? And really, for lack of a a better term, the European Union are negotiating up a storm when it comes to these sanctions and when it comes to making very, very clear exactly what Europe's position is on this horrendous crime. Sanctions continue to bite on the average Russian citizen and you could debate whether these sanctions will really hurt Putin or give him pause for thought, but we can see he's furious by the language he uses to describe them, claiming that the sanctions represent an act of war against Russia. And I really, I just wish that some Western figure had responded and completely deadpan to the effect that, oh no, these aren't sanctions, they're a special economic operation. I think it might be good to beat Russia over the head with its own bullshit propaganda and see how they like it. Maybe that's just me being petty, but I also, I just think sometimes the best way to deal with clear and obvious rubbish is to throw rubbish back at them. Maybe again, I'm just falling into their trap, but the temptation is certainly there. Of course, sanctions as they are, they won't end the war. Only the Ukrainians can realistically end the war, but sanctions do make a difference. Economic life in Russia is becoming increasingly hard, and Russia's options are dwindling dramatically. Something which will truly damage the Russian economy further will be the total ban of any imports of Russian oil or gas, which the Poles are now increasingly calling for. Now, painful as this might be, 
I do agree with the sentiments because at this stage, energy prices are so high. In Ireland, they've increased 30%. It already costs us to heat our apartment. Every two months, we get a bill that just seems to grow and grow more and more. To heat our one-bedroom apartment, and we don't even use heating all that much, we try and use it sparingly, but it's nearly €300 Euro every two months, and I know that that's not even the worst that's been recalled. It's only going to get higher from now on, guys. So it's probably wise to move away from these sources of fuel, or at the very least, get them from different places, develop those places where it can be gotten from without actually pouring money into a regime as horrendous as Putin's. Maybe weaning ourselves off from Russia is the best thing we can do right now. Either way, it's clear that any money that we send to Russia to pay for any of these sources, be it oil or gas, that money is going straight into funding the war effort. So you can understand why Ukrainians object so vociferously to the ongoing trade of oil and gas between Russia and the West. Certainly the ending of Nord Stream 2 as a plan, which to my mind never should have existed in the first place, the idea that you could cut Ukraine off from gas and make a direct line from Russia to Germany with gas imports, I mean that just seems like a recipe for disaster for several reasons. But yeah, it's been abandoned, which is certainly a good thing. Ireland also has a role to play in this. We are receiving a shipment of Russian oil. I think it's tomorrow, Wednesday, the 9th of March. So there is some discussion over whether that will be actually allowed to be unloaded from the boat into Ireland itself. I know that in the UK, I'm not exactly sure which port it was, but they actually refused to unload the Russian oil. The dock workers literally refused to do it, so... Maybe this will happen here as well. Our tarnished uh, Leo Varadkar, basically our deputy prime minister, he said that all options are on the table, which is a kind of another way of basically saying, I don't really know right now, ask me in a few days' time. So we'll see what happens. But speaking of Ireland and its position in all of this, I just thought it would be interesting to give you our perspective. Because for the last several days, there's been very loud protests ongoing outside the Russian embassy in Ireland demanding that we basically expel the Russian ambassador Yuri Filatov. This ambassador decried the claim that Russia was about to invade. He basically went along with the Kremlin line that it was all hysteria, which either makes him Putin's useful idiot or makes him a liar complicit with Putin's schemes. In my view, there's no room for him in Ireland and he should be kicked out. And I think some kind of European-wide expulsion of of Russian diplomats would be a good thing. That would send a very clear message, and it would force the Russians to essentially engage in the direct line of diplomacy that has opened up with Emmanuel Macron of France, and even maybe take their negotiations with the Ukrainians more seriously. Who knows? We'll see. But continuing on with this, a lot of Irish people agree that this ambassador should be kicked out, Red paint was thrown on the outside of the embassy by an Irish priest. And just yesterday, on Monday the 7th of March, a truck was reversed through the Russian embassy's gates. The Russian embassy in Ireland had the temerity to claim that the act violated the Vienna Convention regarding the security of embassies. And it says that the Guardi stood idly by. 
Again, I really wish our political leadership had the balls to criticise the Russian embassy for hysteria. Oh, it wasn't a truck ramming your gates, Mr. Ambassador. It was a special parking operation. You know, again, it is stupid and juvenile to do stuff like that, but... Maybe if we fight ludicrous claim with ludicrous claim, Russia's diplomatic personnel might come to terms with how isolated they are and how completely bankrupt, morally and economically soon to be bankrupt, their Russian leadership is. One can hope, anyway. If even the Irish hate you, though, you must be doing something wrong. So... Earlier in the year, the Russians also talked of their intentions to host naval manoeuvres off Ireland's southwest coast. Now, it was far enough from our actual borders that you couldn't legally object to it, but no one was under any actual illusions as to why they chose the moment of heightened tensions. This was, of course, in January before the war had broken out. But nobody was under any illusions to what they were doing there, despite their claims that these things were completely normal and routine. Now, I remember walking around in in Greystones, which is a beautiful seaside town in Wicklow. Super expensive to live in, but also super beautiful to live in too. And just walking around and seeing these people who, like, of course, just like Ukrainians probably were in many ways, unprepared for war on several levels. And here was Russia throwing around this military threat. And it got me thinking, I'm sure it got a lot of Irish politicians thinking as well. And the debate has continued over Ireland's official position on neutrality and whether it should even really still be official. Of course, if you're going to change something as fundamental as that, you do have to actually invest in Ireland's armed forces. While there might be space for debate on the future of Ireland's neutral policy, there's no point in a sudden shift in our policy before we actually invest in our armed forces. Fun fact, I actually joined the Army Reserve all the way back in 2009, mostly because I just thought... Call of Duty was great and I just wanted to experience it in real life. And cuts to Arden's military were so bad back then that my friend Sean, also of Talk Episode fame, couldn't actually join up with me because his application was handed in a week after the cutoff point. That should go to show where our priorities lie in Irish defence. Although I think it goes without saying that if the Russians did attack Ireland, whether we're in NATO or not, wouldn't matter. Because Irish Americans, let alone Ireland's EU membership, would insulate us from those threats. You might think I'm stupid for believing such things, but you can't very well attack a European Union member and expect no consequences. Anyway, the experiences of the last few months have been eye-opening, and I'm sure Ukrainians believed Russia wouldn't attack due to the outrage it would cause, so maybe I'm being naive and a country is only as safe as its military makes it, in which case we'll have to rely on the Irish Rangers. But back to the diplomacy issue, and increasing the economic, cultural and financial isolation of Russia is by far and away the best way to show our disapproval, and all of this is possible through diplomacy, and after watching Trump bumble through his hideous foreign policy over the last few years, my heart really swells with pride when I see... Secretary of State Blinken and von der Leyen standing side by side and confirming the values which I hold really dearly and which it was always really obvious that Europe and America held in common. I bet the United Kingdom feels pretty stupid for Brexiting now, but again, that's another story. I won't let my saltiness shine through about that subject just yet because we don't have the space for that. 
Having talked about the background to this, having talked about the diplomacy element, let's talk a little bit about the consequences and where I see all of this kind of going. Now, I'm about as useful as any other talking head on this subject, with the exception that I've been to Ukraine and maybe some of those talking heads haven't been. But if you like my opinion about history and you like my perspective about those things, then maybe this will be of interest to you. In any case, I have this opinion, and if you disagree with it, that is fine. Let's not start throwing things. We are adults after all. So long term, how do I rate Ukraine's prospects? Well, to begin with, it's plain that NATO is becoming more militarily involved in this. Thousands of volunteers have already joined Ukraine's foreign legion, including about 500 Belarusians, interestingly enough. I wonder what the number would be of actual Russians joining up, if they could get that number. But certainly, it proves that Belarus, at the very least, is not happy with what's going on. I think I saw that Belarus's deputy defense minister resigned over this, so... Yeah, it's not going too well. Apparently Lukashenko of of Belarus is actually distancing himself from Putin as well. So who knows? Maybe by the time you're listening to this, Putin's position will have completely fallen apart and there'll be a, a an October revolution of 2022. But in March, who knows? In the last few hours, it was confirmed that the United States wouldn't block NATO efforts to supply the Ukrainians with planes. This suggests that there is a way around that riskier no-fly zone idea. But at the same time, it's really essential that those jets arrive quickly. And we might be thinking, well, it seems as though there's more problems with artillery and with shelling than with actual planes. But when you have planes in the sky from the Ukrainian side, that would introduce a whole new element of the conflict for the Russians to have to deal with, let alone the fact that artillery pieces can be vulnerable when they're left in the open to fire on cities. So, of course, it would be very useful. But if in the next few days and weeks, foreign fighter jets begin to arrive in Ukraine, tipping the balance of air superiority away from Russia, this would reduce even further the advantages that Russia enjoys, and it might even cause their advance to stall altogether. Having said that, it's quite clear that air superiority has not been achieved by Russia, but when you're fighting a country like Ukraine, whose air force is minuscule compared to your own, you still have essentially freedom of the skies, even if you are subject to all of the weapons that have been supplied by NATO members. Least of all Germany, which again ended its years-long tradition of not supplying lethal weapons in conflicts for the sake of the greater good. Looking at the situation objectively, I don't see how the Russians will take Ukraine. And this is another reason why I didn't Like, I didn't really believe that this war would happen, because one of two things were going to happen. Either the Russians would invade, and the Ukrainians would collapse in days, and then Ukraine would belong to Russia. Or it would be the reverse, and Russia would be facing into essentially what's happening now. And when they're facing this situation, where resistance is growing by the day, anger is growing by the day, Russia is losing millions every day in rubles, and a large chunk of soldiers as well that they're not reporting. Russians are getting angrier, they're getting bolder, they're operating on this premise that you can't arrest all of us if thousands upon thousands go to protest. I mean, it's looking almost untenable, to the point where you start to wonder... 
am I fooling myself here? Am I buying into this overly positive image of things because I've been fed only the good information about Ukraine's position? And am I going to... I had this. I keep having this fear. This is still a fear that I'll wake up and see that Kiev has been taken. Although, I just don't see how they could take it, let alone hold it afterwards. It's estimated that anywhere between half a million to 800,000 Russian soldiers would be needed to actually hold Ukraine and face down its insurgency. And as Svaroslav Yurash said in that clip I played earlier, even if the Russians successfully assassinate Zelensky, please God they won't, even if they essentially kill all Ukrainian parliamentarians, even if they take Kiev and raise it to the ground, it's not going to make a blind bit of difference. It's not going to make the Ukrainians want to be part of Russia any more than they wanted to be two years ago or two weeks ago or two months ago. It's just not viable. It's not It's not even that it's not a viable strategy. It's not a strategy. You can't bomb your neighbor into wanting to be a part of your country. The world just doesn't work like that. So facing into this endless insurgency, facing into this guerrilla warfare which would essentially amount to a new Afghanistan for Russia, but in 2022 rather than 1979. It just doesn't seem like there's a way out of this for the Russians, except maybe for diplomacy. Now, this is my kind of perspective on it. And of course, there are concerns. As I said, like, I worry that I'll wake up and learn that Kharkiv or Kiev or Lviv, that beautiful, beautiful city, would be destroyed by Russian bombs and taken over. Never mind how Ukrainians feel, I'll find it very difficult to ever forgive Russia if they destroy something as historically and culturally sacred as a city like Lviv. Really, you just have to go there and see it for yourselves. It's stunning. What if that convoy stalled outside Kiev actually wakes the hell up and moves into the capital? Again, if they do, you can't just roll a load of tanks into a city. There's so many logistical things that go along with that. Again, I'm not a general. I'm not even a qualified armchair general, so I can't predict how this is going to go. But the fact that the Russians haven't even gotten air superiority yet suggests that they'd have a very difficult time of it if they did try to navigate the city with their tanks and with their soldiers and with their planes. Even if they bomb it into submission, you're creating craters from which the resistance will fight back. They'll go into the undergrounds, they'll fight, they'll just, they'll never give up the fight. I mean, you wouldn't give up the fight if the Russians invaded you. Really, the Russians have about as much claim to your country as they do to Ukraine. So, in that situation, would you continue to resist if Russian tanks rolled in? after you got over your shock of how those tanks got there in the first place. Stinger missiles, Molotov cocktails, and AK-47s in the hundreds of thousands, including that one that Svatoslav Yurash was handed. Like, the Russians will have to take the city street by street. Every city they go to, the situation will be the same. They're not going to be welcomed anywhere. Even for the record, even the opposition party in Ukraine, which used to style itself as as pro-Russian, of of pro-Russian sentiment in a way. Even they are against this invasion and they support Zelensky 1000%. There's no disunity. If anything, Russia has made the situation in Ukraine much more crystal clear. Now it's either you're for Ukraine or you're for Russia and there is no in-between. So Russians having to face this situation... I mean, you can say first and foremost, conscripts will be effectively useless and more expensive mercenaries or veterans will have to be brought in by a regime which is already in dire financial straits. 
So, what if Putin fulfills his threat to use nuclear weapons? I've seen this suggested in some areas, and other people have suggested that this is why a no-fly zone is a bad thing. I think we should clarify, first of all, just because a no-fly zone won't lead to nuclear war doesn't mean a no-fly zone isn't incredibly dangerous to try and set up. To do that, to say that we'll shoot any Russian planes out of the sky if they appear, you're just inviting World War Three in that situation. The Russians... Even facing down impossible odds, they would not be able to just allow that to happen without doing something about it. So saying no-fly zone is basically asking for World War Three Again, as I said, that doesn't mean they can't do anything. Send those planes in that the Ukrainians can use. See if there's a volunteer pilot scheme that can be used. I mean, if people are willing to volunteer to fight in the Ukrainian army, they might be willing to volunteer to fight the Ukrainian Air Force. That kind of thing. Think outside the box a little bit and enable the Ukrainians to defend themselves. But back to the nukes. Putin is clearly addled with a warped nationalist ideology, but I don't think he's insane enough to begin a mutually destructive race to a nuclear winter. Instead, I would see his threats to use nuclear weapons as a symptom of weakness, and he's actually used these threats before when things haven't really gone his way. The real fear, though, and this is a fear which is increasingly being borne out, tragically, is that the violence and the carnage and the losses will all get worse. This isn't helped by Russian efforts to maintain their ridiculous facade that all Ukrainians are really Russian. This is seen most blatantly recently in their insistence that any humanitarian corridors, or at least the vast majority of these humanitarian corridors, that they must lead back into Russia or Belarus. Just imagine that. Just imagine telling civilians in a country that you're invading that if you want to be safe, if you want to escape from the war and the shelling and the bombing, if you want your children to be safe, the only real way to do so is to come back into the country that is in fact attacking you. Imagine asking them to do that with a straight face and then complaining when they don't want to or when negotiations break down or what have you. It's just unfathomable that they could be doing stuff like this and expect no one to object. Crazy. Really crazy. The more obvious it is, if it wasn't blatantly obvious yet, that Ukrainians would rather die than become one big Russia, the more likely it is that these stark facts might filter back to the Russian people, now cut off from all sources of information, save for the state propaganda organs. And we shouldn't underestimate these organs either. They've been so effective that some reports have emerged of Russian parents not believing their children that live in Ukraine when they said that bombs were falling outside. Perhaps because of the dominance of state propaganda, again, we find uncomfortable parallels with the Nazis and with Hitler, These are probably inevitable, and the irony isn't lost on us history enthusiasts that the same nation of people that resisted Hitler's forces so tenaciously and ferociously on their home soil didn't seem to anticipate a similar degree of passion for nationhood in their neighbours when they behaved similarly, well, to the Nazis in that respect. Putin's regime, just like Adolf Hitler's regime, is making extensive use of terror and reprisals and repressions. It's not just cutting it like all sources of information off, it's threatening your citizens with 15-year jail sentences if they do so much as protest. Now, by and large, this does not seem to be having its intended effect, mostly because the weight of evidence against Russia is just becoming so overwhelming. And while you might try and cut Russian citizens off, 
they, like all people, will search for the truth. And they, like the vast majority of people, will strive to do the right thing. And in those circumstances, Putin's real empire of lies can only hold out for so long. What, hopefully what this episode has done is clarify several facts for you guys and give you some context, not just about how I feel and how I see things going, but but also how clear-cut this conflict is. Sometimes in history an event happens which is as plain a case for right versus wrong as it can be. That said, we have to be on guard against those that would try and confuse the picture. This is never about NATO. It was never about false claims of genocide in the disputed territories. And it's not about evidence of nuclear or biological weaponry, which the Russians are desperately trying to manufacture. This is about a powerful, aggressive, dictatorial regime attacking a smaller neighbour because that smaller neighbour wanted independence and because that larger neighbour wanted an easy win and a chance for expansion. And as violations of the post-1945 world order go, there's no doubt in my mind that Russia's invasion of Ukraine will go down in history as one of the most repugnant and villainous acts in recent memory, certainly of the 21st century, although God knows what's to come in this century in the future. It means the return of war to the European continent and the betrayal of lessons and principles learned after the worst war in human history. It's been almost exactly two years since I enjoyed the sights and flavours of such a diverse and fascinating and welcoming culture And honestly, guys, it breaks my heart, it really does, to see the daily reports of refugees and war crimes and other atrocities visited upon an innocent nation by a raving lunatic and his sycophantic cabal. And I I know I'm not alone in that. I'm not under any illusions about the fact that the very vast majority of you feel the exact same. But still, wow, it really just... It makes me mad and sad to a degree I have not felt in a really very long time. I'm veering between despair, rage, and in some cases hope as well. And that's not only just hope that Ukraine will prevail, but also that the criminals responsible for this evil are brought to justice and that the world finds a new appreciation for peace and the importance of protecting it. Maybe, who knows, in the future... This Russian invasion of Ukraine will be upheld as a case study for why wars are impossible in the modern information age. And of course it is horrendous that Ukrainians have to suffer on the altar of history because of that. And that is why I really do hope that Putin is held to account, that his sycophants are made accountable, and that they don't get away with this. Whatever happens after this war, we have to be able to show that these kinds of acts are completely unacceptable and we have a responsibility for all of mankind now and into the future to show that we've moved past war and certainly in Europe at the very least we know what it means to engage in conflict on a large dangerous terrible scale and we are determined never to do so again. So thanks so much for listening to this. My voice is nearly giving up. Yeah, let me know what you thought. If you guys want to help Ukraine deal with this evil, consider donating to recommended charities. Literally just look it up from where you live. I'm not going to tell you how to live your life because people have very strong opinions on the best charities for situations like these. You can also follow Sadislav Yurash on Twitter. His Twitter is the main way I reassure myself that he's still alive. He also recently rescued a dog after its owner died. So, yeah, he's a great guy. Really, that's a great way to end this episode on that kind of symbol of hope. 
It's also a startling contrast where Ukrainians rescue dogs, Russia shells residential blocks. We know in this situation which is good, we know which is evil, and we know who's on the right side of history. Thanks for listening, guys. Slava Ukraine, and take care. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.